The reading this morning is from John chapter 11, verses 28 to 44. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, The teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odour, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you, would believe, if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Um, but thanks very much indeed for uh, reading. Please, if you have a Bible in front of you, do keep it open. Or if you have the reading on the outline, then that would be helpful to have to hand so that you can follow. The question I want to ask today is how should we respond to death? Death is all around us. And yet, how should we respond to it? Perhaps it shouldn't really bother us at all. After all, Richard Dawkins tells us that our universe has precisely the properties we should expect if there is no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but pitiless indifference. In other words, death is just the way life is, and we better get used to it. Or perhaps we should respond by clinging to some of the, the usual platitudes that we hear in the face of death. You know, they, they've just gone next door, they've gone to a better place, or I'm glad their suffering is over. Really? But how do we know? Surely no adult should be content with that kind of uh, childish, blind faith. Just as any parent is keen to help their child to distinguish between what is true and what is make-believe, so we should do the same. 
or perhaps a stiff upper lip is the best response in the face of death. Denial, that hides the pain and hurt, and yet that hardly squares, does it, with the fear and pain that we see around us every day. Well, this is the third of our series of talks in John chapter 11. And my aim this morning is simply for us to see that death is a far bigger deal. It is far more significant than we tend to think it is. We're also going to see how it is that we can trust Jesus in the face of death. If you've been following these talks, then you'll remember how John chapter 11 begins. Verse 1, now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary, and her sister Martha. And then verse 3, so the sisters sent to Jesus, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. We've seen the shock as Jesus delayed uh, waiting until Lazarus had died before journeying to Bethany. We've seen the meeting of uh, Martha meeting Jesus on the road as he comes to Bethany, Lazarus's uh, sister Martha. And now it's the turn of the other sister, Mary, as she meets Jesus together with the crowds and mourners and onlookers. Have a look again at verses 32 to 37. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, Where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, See how he loved him. But some of them said, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Jesus shows us firstly, why we should respond to death with indignation, why we should respond to death with indignation. Because I think here is the question. Have a look again at verse 35. Why does Jesus weep? Well, no doubt in part it reveals his humanity, just as we see elsewhere in the gospel accounts that Jesus could hunger, thirst, eat, drink, walk, sleep groan and get tired, so too he weeps. Yes, Jesus Christ was fully God on earth, and yet he was also fully human, sharing in our humanity. The Christian author John Stott um, used to describe how he visited on several occasions Buddhist temples in Southeast Asia, how he would stand respectfully in front of the statue of the Buddha with its legs crossed, arms folded, eyes closed, the ghost of a smile playing around its mouth, a remote look on its face, detached from all the agonies of the world. And how on each occasion he had had to turn aside and instead to think of Jesus Christ, who stood not above suffering, but instead entered our world of flesh and blood, tears, and death. Jesus Christ, the one who can sympathise with us in our weaknesses. And that in itself will be great comfort to many in the face of death. 
But I think this is the question. Are they simply fake tears? Just think for a moment how easily these tears could have been spared. If only Jesus had gone to Lazarus when he was ill, rather than waiting till he had died, these tears would have been spared. No one would be crying. What's more, Lazarus, uh, Jesus knows that Lazarus is going to rise again. Why doesn't he just say, don't worry, there's no big deal, there's no reason to be upset. Perhaps in the same way that a, a parent might say to a toddler who, uh, running around the playground, uh, falls over, uh, its knee is grazed, there's blood dripping, don't worry, we'll put a plaster on it, everything will be fine. So notice, therefore, that it's not simply that Jesus wept. Verse 33, it's that he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And again, in verse 38, he is deeply moved. That word literally means he is outraged. Not because Jesus has lost his friend Lazarus, but outraged by death itself. Now, you and I will only see the significance of that in the context of the whole Bible, because death is not an accident. In the worldview of the whole Bible, death is the result of human sin. It is the result of our rebellion against God, the rebellion that is in the hearts of each one of us. The rebellion that says to God, I will live my life, my way, on my own terms. So if you have a Bible, I'd be grateful if you would turn back to the first book of the Bible, to Genesis, to see this. To Genesis chapters 2 and 3. God put Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. It's full of his kind, generous and good provision. In chapter 2, verses 16 and 17, we're told, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So then, what is at the heart of sin? Well, it is doubting God's word. As the serpent says to the woman in chapter 3, verse 1, did God actually say that you shall not eat any tree in the garden? And if we stop to think about it, that is how we all naturally live, isn't it? We, we ignore God. Uh, we decide that uh, we'll be the ones who decide what is right and what is, and what is wrong. We live life on our own terms, despite living in God's world. And that rejection of God is then repeated in verse four, as the serpent says, you will not surely die. And therefore, you see, as they eat the fruit, it is a declaration that they will run their lives their own way without God. And the punishment is death, just as God said it would be. In fact, flick on to Genesis chapter 5, where we are given the first ever family tree. And the point is that Adam and each of his descendants all died. 
verse 5, thus all the days that Adam lived were 930 years and he died. Verse 8, thus all the days of Seth were 912 years and he died. Verse 11, thus all the days of Enosh were 905 years and he died. Verse 14, thus all the days of Kenan were 910 years and he died. Verse 17, thus all the days of Mahalalel were 895 years and he died. Verse 20, thus all the days of Jared were 962 years and he died. Genesis shows us that death is a consequence of sin. It is part of God's judgment. And it's this, therefore, that explains why it is that Jesus is so outraged in the face of death. Just listen to the Christian writer Don Carson describing death in this way. We are sinners and we will die. Every time there is death, it still hurts. It is painful. It is still ugly. And it is still the result of sin. This was not the way God made the creation in the first place. Jesus is outraged by the whole thing. He is outraged by the death that has called forth this loss, by the sin that lies behind it. In other words, death is not normal when you look at it from the vantage point of the creation that God made in the first place. It is an enemy. It is ugly. It destroys relationships. It is to be feared. Now let's address then some of those attitudes to death that we thought about at the very beginning. Is there something which we should just get used to, as Richard Dawkins suggests? Should we simply be content with some of those woolly platitudes? They've gone to a better place. They're now at peace. Or adopt a stiff upper lip. Maybe that's the answer. No, the Bible is more brutally realistic. It dares to recognise that death is indeed the last enemy. It is terrible. It is right to be indignant in the face of it. The idea that death is natural, or that in some sense it's possible to die well, to die a good death, is nonsense. And yet, wonderfully, Death needn't have the last word. Yes, Jesus shows us why we should respond to death with indignation. But secondly, he also shows us how we can respond to death with confidence. And that's verses 38 to 44. Now, I want us to spend some time on these verses because the miracles of Jesus Christ are well documented in the New Testament. And yet it's so easy uh, either not really to take them seriously or to fail to see their significance. For some, of course, Jesus' miracles are mere conjuring tricks, while others, perhaps in their arrogance, imagine uh, how easily gullible first century people would have been fooled and no doubt believe that if Jesus came to London today, then no one would be taken in. After all, miracles can't happen. So notice, will you, first of all, that Lazarus was really dead. Verses 38 to 39. Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. 
Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there'll be an odour, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? Lazarus was really dead. He's been in the dead four days already. Decomposition would have already set in. In a hot climate, the, the stench, the smell would have been terrible. Which means the raising of Lazarus was not simply resuscitation. In the first century, people had much more of a, a day-to-day connection with death. It was much more familiar to them. They didn't shunt people off into care homes and hospitals. We mustn't dismiss this account as those of pre-scientific gullible people who would believe in anything. But notice Lazarus was not only really dead, he was also really raised. Verse 43, when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. Now just imagine for a moment being at that funeral, uh, standing outside that tomb and hearing these words of Jesus. How embarrassing it must have felt to hear these, those words. Who does Jesus think he is getting people's hopes up like that? After all, if Jesus hadn't then raised Lazarus, imagine what would have happened next. Perhaps one or two sniggers in the crowd. Someone says, try again, Jesus. Someone else says, shout louder, Jesus. He can't hear you. And then the anger as someone else says, what a terrible, cruel trick on a grieving family. Now, if Jesus hadn't raised Lazarus, we would know about it. Jesus, the con man. Jesus, the cruel fake. But what happens instead? Verse 44, the man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with the cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Only the, only the blinkered or the prejudiced can dismiss the overwhelming evidence for this miracle. And notice in the next verse, in verse 45, just how very public this was. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. While later on in John chapter 12, the opponents of Jesus plot to kill Lazarus because there's nothing else they can do. If Jesus hadn't raised Lazarus, they could find his body, they could dig it out of the tomb, they could parade his body through the streets, and everyone would know what a con man Jesus is. But Lazarus is alive, and therefore in desperation, the only answer is to kill him. In October 2019, the Kenyan marathon runner Eliud Kipchoge became the first person ever to run a marathon in under two hours. He covered the 26.2 mile distance in a once inconceivable one hour, 59 minutes and 40 seconds during a specially tailored event in Vienna. 
Now, how might I try and persuade a skeptic that he had actually pulled that thing off? Well, I guess I could explain how long it takes me to do a park run and then by a kind of process of extrapolation, uh, try and uh, work out how long it might take a professional marathon runner to run a record marathon. That would certainly uh, be a leap of faith. But surely much more persuasive would be to show them the evidence, to show them the film footage of what had actually taken place. You see, one of the myths about faith is that faith is what we have to resort to when there's no evidence. We talk, don't we, about a leap of faith. In fact, I've lost count, I think, of the, the number of people who have genuinely asked me, you know, how could you bring yourself to make this leap of faith? And yet in the Bible, faith is always on the basis of reasoned evidence. And that is precisely what we see here in John chapter 11. Lazarus was really dead. Lazarus was really raised to life. And then in verses 40 to 42, we see the explanation how this is possible. Verse 40, Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. Here you see is Jesus Christ, God the Son, in perfect relationship with God the Father, the one who has come from God, the one who speaks the very words of God, the one who does the very works of God, whose words and actions, you put them together, they reveal God perfectly. So then what are the implications? Well, firstly, if Jesus Christ can raise the dead, there is no reason to doubt any of the other miracles. He can give sight to the blind. He can give the mute their voice, the deaf their hearing, the lame the use of their legs. If he is Lord of death, then surely he can calm a storm. He can miraculously feed 5,000 people. Now, it may well be that you're uh, listening to this and you are someone who frankly finds the miracle accounts in the Gospels unbelievable. And yet, of course, if Jesus Christ really is God come to earth, then we shouldn't be surprised when we see the creator overturning and uh, directing, uh, demonstrating uh, his complete control over his creation. He commands a storm it stops. He commands death, and it's reversed. But secondly, this anticipates Jesus' own resurrection from the dead. Don't turn to it now, but you can look it up later in John chapter 20. Both Jesus and Lazarus were placed in tombs with stones across the entrance, their bodies embalmed with cloths in order to keep the stench away. We're told that when Jesus' disciples come to his tomb, 
the stone has been rolled away already. But what is the critical piece of evidence that John draws our attention to? Well, it's the linen cloths lying there, folded up, the grave clothes set to one side. The point being, you see, that Lazarus, having come back from death, he walks out of the grave wearing his, because he will need them again when he dies 30, 40 years time as an old man. Whereas Jesus, he doesn't simply come back from death. No, he goes through death and beyond and out the other side. And therefore, he will never need them again. You see, if Jesus rose from the dead, never to die again, it cannot simply be something that is moderately significant. Either he didn't, in which case you and I can completely dismiss it. Christianity is based on a fraud, or it did, in which case it changes everything forever. Jesus is alive today. He is indeed Lord and God. But then the third implication, because the raising of Lazarus anticipates the raising to life after death of all those who have put their trust in Jesus. In other words, this is far more significant than simply one man being raised back to life again, perhaps to enjoy another 30 years of life or whatever it is. No, it is an open symbol of Jesus' conquest of death and hell. When Eliud Kipchoge ran that Vienna Marathon in under two hours, he gave a press conference afterwards and he said this, now I've done it. I'm expecting more people to do it after me. Now, it's very similar to what the Lord Jesus could have said after raising Lazarus. There are going to be many, many more. Because, you see, the miracle authenticates the claim that we saw Jesus makes in chapter 11, verses 25 and 26. We looked at those verses last week. Just have a look at them again. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Now, how do we know Jesus isn't bluffing? Well, because he raised Lazarus. Because Jesus himself was raised from the grave, never to die again. In other words, the raising of Lazarus to life in this world is a visual aid of what will happen to everyone who has put their trust in Jesus as he raises them to life in the next world. Now, I take it that for those who have died in uh, recent weeks, trusting in Jesus Christ, I take it that for all of us, as we face death, those of us who are trusting and Jesus, in Jesus Christ, it means we can indeed have great confidence in the face of death. Confidence not in ourselves, but confidence in him. Let me lead us in prayer. Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips 
his face wrapped with a cloth. Heavenly Father, we thank you very much for the way in which the Lord Jesus shows us we shall regard death, both with indignation, as we see that it's far greater, far more significant simply than biological decay, and yet also how wonderfully we can be confident in Jesus Christ, those who trust in him, of life beyond the grave, resurrection life. And we pray, Heavenly Father, please would you help each one of us to take Jesus' words to heart and to grow in trust of him. And we ask it in his name. Amen.